0: Well, good morning. If you don't know me, I am Pastor Jory. I'm in charge of the youth here, for better or worse. And I am very appreciative, praise him, of that last song. Because <clears throat> this morning is going to be one of those, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. I've been dealing with a cold that my son felt uh, blessed to share with me. And uh, it wasn't so bad early in the week. I'm like, I got this. And then I spent most of last night awake coughing. I feel fine other than I can't stop coughing. And so for your sake, I'm going to use a handheld mic so you don't have to hear me cough through a microphone every time I do. And after the service, if I don't shake your hand, it's not you, it's me. I'm just trying to be kind to all of you. But, uh, so it's been a challenge, and I, uh, <clears throat> I will give this a whirl. I'm glad to be able to have the opportunity to speak this morning. I've been asked to be speaking about the promise. So I'm going to start with a question. How many of you have ever made a promise that you soon regretted? Anybody at all? <clears throat> how many of you have ever made, it? let's be honest, how many of you have ever made a promise you actually had no intention of keeping? I see all the parents, yes. <laughs> I made a promise recently that I now regret. <clears throat> see, in the beginning month, or beginning of the month of November, I promised the teens that if they raised $700, uh, for action packs to help persecuted Christians through Voice of the Martyr, that I would throw the winning team, guys versus girls, I would throw them a pizza party. I'm okay with that part. I like pizza. all right. But I also said that the winning team, if you raised $700, could dye my beard any color you wanted. And you're thinking, why would you say that? Because I didn't think they were going to do it. And so let me just say thank you to all those parents who so graciously gave money to your teens to donate, because as of Friday, I counted up, and they raised $1,400. And so, no, don't clap for them. All right, don't clap. So if you see me, and here's the thing, I also said that, like, I would leave it for a week or so, depending on how much they raised. So if you see me on Wednesday, it'll still be, by the way, it's hot pink was the color they chose, hot pink. You know, it's okay. There's nothing going on. Uh, It's my son's birthday on Thursday. I'm going to my daughter's band concert Thursday night, and Saturday is my anniversary, so we're going out. Um, So it should go fine. Uh, My wife is thrilled, by the way. And when I counted that money, and as my heart began to sink, because I did not... I love you guys. I thought, how do I get out? Where's the loophole? You know, there's got to be one. I'm a big proponent of pinky swearing. We never pinky swore, all right? So, th- but I thought, no, let your yes be yes. So I asked my youth pastor friends, I met with some of them Tuesday. I said, hey, how do you get out of a situation like this, you know, in Christ? And, uh, and one of my youth pastor friends says, you know, I once did something similar. I told them they could shave my head. I'm like, well, what did you do? I said, well, it got to that day. Like, uh huh. He goes, I said, no. <laughs> I said, how would that play out? I mean, he goes, it's been four years and the teens haven't stopped nagging yet. So now I've got a decision. I could just say no because I'm a grown man. I can do that. Do I really want years of nagging? Because I know their makeup, I know their character, and it's not beneath them. So if if you see me next Sunday, and I have a pink beard, just know it is the cross I have to carry for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But sincerely, I was very proud of them for doing that. We're going to talk about prayers. This, or excuse me, not prayers. We're going to talk about promises this morning, and uh, building on our our theme again last week. Pastor Dave uh, talked about the problem. We don't need to insert some cheesy surface level joke there. All right, <clears throat> the problem. I'll be talking about the promise, and then next week Pastor Jason will talk about the prophecy, and then finally on Christmas morning, Pastor Brett talking about the presence of Emmanuel God with us. And I wanted to. Uh, anchor my sermon this morning in part of the Christmas story. Now I know we're kind of building up to, and but I believe there's a statute of limitations on spoiler alerts, and 2,000 years is well beyond that. So if you don't know how this story ends yet, and I spoil it for you, I'm sorry. But I think most of us are aware that Jesus is born. Okay, so we're going to go with that, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, starting there. And you can turn there in your Bibles while I, while I wrap this up here, this intro. But <clears throat> it's part of the story that you know. I hope on Christmas morning, if you have young children that you gather around and you take time to read the story. I hope you do that. And this is, I, but we're going to do a part of the story today that you might not get to, right? Because in their eagerness, you might run out of patience and cut the story off before this. So we're going to look this morning at the story of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 35. And I'm going to read that. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for some help. And then we're going to examine this text this morning. Let me read this for you. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present, uh, to present him to the Lord, as it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to, uh, to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of the people of Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the tongue's The thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning that we could be here gathered together. We have many brothers and sisters in Christ whose names we do not know who are not afforded the same freedom to do that. And so we come freely and openly. I pray that we would not come easily or flippantly or half-hearted but that we would seize the moment we are given to gather together as a body of believers to sit under your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. May he fill me and speak through me. Give me clear thought, give me clear speech, give me clear tongue and suppress this cough in a way that the medicine has not been able to this week. That the distractions would melt away and we would see what God you are doing what you have done and you continue to do in your creation. Bless us, prepare our hearts, and may we be ready to receive this and obey. We love you. you just may pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. So in the first part of this text, Jesus is being presented at the temple. And I'll read that section again just to highlight it. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Two turtle doves, not just a Christmas song, it's biblical, or two young pigeons. Luke is making a point to highlight that Jesus, even as an infant, is obedient and living in perfect obedience to the law. Why does he do that? For the original reader who he's writing for, but also for our modern day readers that we would see. See, Luke in this passage, not this passage, his entire epistle, is building a case for the person of the Messiah. He's providing evidence. He's trying to establish that there is a thumbprint that the Messiah must match perfectly, there's a set of criteria and expectations. God-given expectations, and we'll see more of those next week when Pastor Jason talks about prophecy. But in this first part, he's establishing, even before Jesus was able to consciously, purposely obey the law, he was living through his parents in obedience to the law. Just like I had no choice when I was born to be born in Michigan. I had no say in it. Now I'm an adult. I have a say in it. And every February, I question why I'm here. I don't have to live here. It gets so miserably cold, but I do. But when I was born, that was my parents' fault, right? And so Jesus, even before he's able to consciously obey, his parents were living in obedience. And so we see that they were following the Old Testament law, which is one of the things, living in fulfillment of the law, that would be a mark, part of one of the unique curves in the thumbprint of the Messiah. And Luke is establishing that. He's referencing Leviticus chapter 12 in this passage. And I'll just read a short excerpt from it. It says this. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue 33 days in the blood of her purifying. And we will go no farther into painting that picture. But he's establishing this is the law. It's what's required of him. And then in verse 6 and and in verse 8 of Leviticus chapter 12, it says. And when the day of her purifying are complete she shall bring to the priest a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she will take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the sin offering is to cover the sins that would have been left unconfessed, that she was not even aware of. Just in case there was something she missed, she gives an offering offering. We get this case from Luke about who the Messiah is and his obedience to the law that would continue throughout the the, the, uh, gospel. But we also just get some, you know, some biographical information can be gleaned from this here. We know from this text that they would be living in Bethlehem still. Bethlehem was about five or six miles, depending on how you traveled, to the temple. uh, And... The alternative, if they had tried to go back to Nazareth, it was a 90-mile journey. So if you've got to take an eight-day-old baby, you'd rather go six miles than 90 miles. And they stayed in Bethlehem until she had to be back on the 40th day to offer the sacrifice and present her son in the temple. So she's living in Bethlehem. We know this is Jesus' second trip to the temple because he was circumcised on the eighth day. We know that Jesus is 40 days old. Right? And there's a lot of babies in our congregation right now. So if you're not sure, you just go to the nursery and go, oh, that's what it looked like. All right? So you'd know about the age. And we can infer that the Magi hadn't yet been present. They haven't been there. Because if they had been there and presented them with gold and frankincense and myrrh, which, by the way, if you're reading through Exodus with me, were three of the the materials used to build the tabernacle. That's not an accident. But gold and frankincense, if they had that, they would have been able to afford a lamb for the sacrifice. So uh, we we like to debate at Christmas time: Should the the, the wise men be at the nativity? Or would we put them on the other side of the shelf for biblical accuracy? Uh, We know it at least they have to be 40 days worth on the other side of the shelf to be accurate here. But this is not just about biographical information, which by the way, do you see the irony that Mary is there with the lamb of God who's take away the sins of the world and yet can't afford a lamb for the sacrifice? I actually, I love this text because, you know, we talk about this idea of God's economy, how he chooses to interact with mankind. And he's established. And we're going to see part of how he shaped and established God's economy in the Old Testament. But in this moment, and this picture, it just kind of all tangles up. God's economy gets twisted because God becomes man. And now God interacts. It becomes a tangled mess. But it's done in a beautiful way. There's another passage that Luke is referencing that we need to remind ourselves of. And that's Exodus chapter 13. <clears throat> this is just after the 10th plague. Egypt. After leaving Egypt, Israel made its first stop in Sukkoth. (coughs) They haven't crossed the Red Sea yet. They've just stopped to make camp for the sake of worshiping. And while they're there, God institutes through Moses three things. He institutes the Passover feast, which was, again, the 10th plague, the Passover, the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, and the dedication of the firstborn. And all three of these things are are established to be done every year, henceforth, forevermore, as long as it's going, as a reminder for God's deliverance of his people Israel from bondage. And we all know the story from Exodus. Again, teens, a number of us are reading through that in our devotions these last month and a half, reading through in the 10th plague in which the, the sons of both the, the humans and the animals in the land of Egypt were sacrificed and were killed, and yet the sons of the Israelites, when they put the blood of a lamb over the doorposts, were spared. And it says, because of this, in Exodus, in verse 2 of chapter 13, it says, Therefore, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, that he is mine. In verse 13, he elaborates, first, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. He's saying, hey, that, that one's mine. The firstborn, they all belong to me. They belong to God. And if you're not going to redeem the donkey, then you don't get to have it either. But you can sacrifice a lamb, and you get to redeem that, and you can keep it. And it says, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem with the blood of a lamb. This is what's happening in Luke chapter two. This is why Mary's at the temple. It's not just for her own purification, but she has arrived to give her son to God. It's at this point in the story of Hannah and Samuel, when Hannah would have given her son Samuel to live at the temple on the 40th day, because she would have taken there to be consecrated, set apart for a holy, sacred purpose and says, this one belongs to you. So because of Exodus, henceforth, every firstborn male must be redeemed by the blood of a lamb, for they have been set apart by God for his purposes. Are you seeing the richness of Luke 2 yet? Mary, the virgin, takes her baby boy Jesus, the name given by an angel, the son of God who is without sin, to be presented in the temple, that place that represents God's presence among his people, And he offers this baby to a priest and a human intermediary between God and man as established in God's economy. And she does this to redeem the redeemer and offer the child of God to God as a picture of God's deliverance from bondage so that he will become our deliverance from bondage. And all of scripture is just a tangled up mess and I love it because it doesn't work when God becomes man. How does God interact with man? The systems are insufficient and yet it's perfectly according to his design because the law was insufficient. Can you see Joseph handing over the baby as if to say, here, God. Here, Jehovah. This is truly your son. And the next time we would see Jesus, he'll be 12 years old at the temple and saying, well, where else would I be but in my father's house? Jesus is presented at the temple. In verse 25, as we continue, we meet a new character. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came to the Spirit, came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took it up Took, it, took him up in his arms, and he blessed God. So here we meet this new man, Simeon. And there's very little actually known about him. This is his only foray into scripture. These are his little, his five verses of fame, if you will. But we know enough. In fact, I would argue we know exactly enough. Because we all, all scripture is sufficient, but it's apparently true in this case as well, abundantly true. We know where he lives, in Jerusalem. That's surface level, we got that. We know his character, and I love that. We are given the character of the man. When I drop my kids off at school, I usually take Malachi to school. My wife usually drives Ellie to school, but sometimes we switch. When I drop my kids off at school, I often the last thing I will say to them is, your character is what counts. I it doesn't matter what my kid's GPA is. It doesn't matter if he is the starting pitcher or the backup role player on a team. It doesn't matter if my daughter is first chair clarinet rocking the fifth grade band. Looking forward to that on Thursday. It doesn't matter. I am. She's doing quite well. It doesn't matter. uh, Any of those things, I said, your character is what counts. Your character is the legacy that we leave behind when we move on from middle school to high school and high school to adulthood. We leave from youth group to adult and we move from here to there. Our character is what counts. So just quickly, I ask you, rhetorically, think for yourself, introspectively, what words of character would others say of you? When you've moved on from this place, you've moved somewhere warmer because you got smart. And they go, oh yeah, I remember them. That was a man of great character. What are the words that you desire? Because if we think about how do I want to be remembered, not in pride or arrogance, no, (laughs) that's a lack of character. But the character we desire and we work for and we ask God for and we ask the Holy Spirit to give us is the character that we will leave behind. We have an opportunity to shape that, and to be that, and to live that, and to set that example. And here we meet this man, and basically all we know about him is his name, his city, and his character. It says specifically that he was, <clears throat> he was righteous and devout. He was righteous in keeping the law. He lived in obedience as best as humanly possible, right? He's not the Messiah. Humanly possible, he lived in obedience to the Old Testament law. He faithfully kept it. <laughs> It says he was devout, which means he was careful and sure. But it also, it has carries this essence of, uh, out of reverence. See, he wasn't obeying the law out of this kind of uh, legalistic, uh, you know, obligation or any of those things. There's a sincerity to this man. He delights in obeying the law, like we see in the Psalms, like we see from David, that he would delight in the law of the Lord. and He meditates day and night, and he's eager, and he desires to live this way. It says, this is the character Interestingly, we are not told what religious sect he is part of. And again, I think that's exactly on purpose. Because Luke is building his case, and he wants everyone to know that this is a man who you can listen to. His testimony, he's about to testify to the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He's going to establish another curve in that thumbprint. And he doesn't want anybody to be able to attract. If he said, hey, this man, Simeon, the Pharisee. Whoa, 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 Pharisee, no, we don't like the, we don't like the Pharisees. He doesn't say Simeon the Sadducee. No, because we, we don't like to say, doesn't say the priest. Oh, the priests are the worst. No, we don't want to hear it from a priest. He doesn't say Simeon the plain ordinary man. He just says Simeon, the man of high character, is going to testify. There's no one who will say, ah, no, he's disqualified because it's his character and his faithfulness to God's law. And whether you are a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a priest or a regular Jew in the first century, you go, I can respect that. This is a man I want to hear. We know something else about Simeon. He was waiting in anticipation for the consolation of Israel. Let me ask you another question. How would you fill in this blank? If I could just see blank, I could die a happy man. What is it you really long to see? What is it you really hope to see? Maybe... You love traveling and you go, you know, I just, I've, if I could just see the, I want to see the Grand Canyon and I'll, I'll let you have altruistic motives. I'm not like, you know, cause the glory of God revealed through his creation, right? So we'll give you the, the benefit of that. If I could just see the Grand Canyon or I could just see Mount Everest, I don't know, or whatever it is. Or maybe it's more personal to say, you know, if I could just see the birth of my first child or maybe it's my first grandchild. Or maybe you long to see your child wed so you know that after you are gone, there was someone to love and take care of them. Maybe you just want to see the Lions win a Super Bowl. And there's no alter, alternative motive there. It's just, oh, how long, oh Lord? Right? It's like this is Israel and Exodus had nothing on the Lions fans. Okay, that might be an overstatement. But what is it? And what does that reveal about our heart? See, what we long for, what we live in anticipation for, what we are looking forward to shapes our thoughts and actions today. And Simeon is desperately longing for the arrival of the consolation of Israel. And it shaped his actions and thoughts every day. Isaiah 41 through 2 is where this term comes from. There's several other passages as well throughout the Old Testament. But in Isaiah 40, it says, comfort, comfort my people. Consolation means comfort, the one who will remove the grief. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double of all her sins. And truly, all of Israel is waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, but I would say it was not like Simeon was waiting he had an eagerness, a desperation. He just—he would do anything. Oh, I could just see this. I could die a happy man. It's a bit like a kid on Christmas Eve. I know Pastor Dave said, "Hey, you know, last week it's not about Christmas nostalgia, but I love nostalgia." Reminds me of my dad when I was growing up. No, um, I love nostalgia. So we'll get a little dose of it here. On Christmas Eve, right? We got the Christmas Eve service. I encourage you to be there. It's good. I've grown up coming to the Christmas Eve service here at Trinity. I bring my kids to it. They all sit fidgety. You just are focused, trying not to burn the person's hair in front of you. Some of us make that easier for the kids than others. All right. Try not to burn the hair of the person. Right? Playing with the wax without getting it on the carpet. You know, we we're threading that needle there. But you're antsy. You get to come up, and you're going to hear the Christmas story from, from usually from Pastor Brett or some of those Michelle Carroll over the years. We're going to hear the Christmas story, and but your kids, are, let's be honest, they're distracted, yeah, because they know what's coming. They're waiting for it. And you get them home, and they're like, "I need a snack." You're like you always need a snack, right? And so you give them a snack and you're trying to get them ready for bed and they're, they're antsy and they're distracted and you, they're, you finally get them in bed and you, and you say, per- how many of you opened a gift on Christmas Eve? How many of that was your family tradition? Wicked, wicked people. No, I'm kidding. My wife's family did too. So, uh, so we always give her a hard time. We were not allowed to open anything on Christmas Eve. Nothing. All right? So we had to wait all. No no sneak peeks, all right, of the Messiah. Like he, we had to wait till Jesus was born. He didn't get to open that early, right? So, so we would have to wait. And so my mom and dad, they'd finally get us in bed. But what, once we were in bed, I needed a drink of water. I didn't before, but I do now. Right. So I needed a drink of water. And so they, okay, fine. Here, get a drink of water. And you get a drink of water, and they get you back in bed. And then... Well, I had a drink of water. I need to go to the bathroom, right? So then you got to get up and go to the bathroom and they get you back in bed. You're distracted because you can't sit still because there's so much anticipation for the next morning. You know what is coming. You're just waiting for it. And they finally get you in bed and they they think it's quiet. And so they start, you know, doing their thing out in the living room around the tree. And and then you hear a noise and you come on like, what was was that? And like, get back in. And you're like, I just, there was a noise. Are those for me? Right? And you're looking around the corner. You know you're not supposed to. Like, the, 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 hey, Brennan, that big one's mine, I bet. Right? And the kid like, back in. You get back in. The kids finally fall asleep. It's late. They're going to be cranky the, the Christmas Eve evening. All right? Christmas night. They're going to be cranky. They didn't sleep. Because they're not sleeping in. No. You get up early on Christmas morning. Yes? Can I get a witness? You get up early. I was not allowed out of bed until 7 or I was not allowed downstairs. Letter of the law here, folks. I was not allowed downstairs until 7 a.m., but I sure did not sleep till 7 a.m. on Christmas morning. I was an early bird. I got up early, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock. You would just lay there in bed, and then by 6 o'clock, you were sitting at the top of the stairs just waiting. You're just here. You know, you're know, you doing one of these, and you're leaning over, trying to get closer, right? Because doing, you doing—you can't speed up the clock, but you're doing whatever. You're doing the ski jumper, trying to get as close to the presence as you can. Whatever you can do to get closer to that moment, Finally, your family, my wife's family, they had a bell and, and they had what? Jingle bells. And on the mo- Christmas morning, they would ring the jingle bells to wake up the family, to wake up your parents. That sounds, you should all do that. That sounds lovely. And if there was ready, the parents would come out and then let them go. We had no jingle bells. We had to sit there and torment, waiting in anticipation for the arrival of those gifts. One year. You were a kid. How old were you? Eight or nine? She thought it would be hilarious. Her, kids put her, or her parents put her to bed, and she lied awake until 1201. Because that's Christmas Day, folks. And she came out at 1201 and ringing those bells, right? Right? and the joy of the lord and her parents panicked and came running out and every woke up and you were the youngest so you had teenage siblings so they loved you right come running out like no 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 back to bed and she's laughing her head off she thinks it's hilarious i think i do too but i would never have done that um <laughs> but 7am my brothers and i in particular my brother Brennan we run down the stairs and we see all the presents there but we can't touch them yet we had to open presents as a family I'm like one of those crazy families that just opens them up all willing. We had to open them, we had to go around one at a time. Right? Yes? You with me? Yeah. Because the Lord's arrival was a slow process. 40 days, okay? (laughs) Trying to get all 40 of those in on Christmas morning. But we could open our stocking stuffers because my parents knew we had, there's only two options. Either you give us a toy to play with or we're waking up the teenage sisters. And you don't want that before they're ready. Okay? So my mom always put a G.I. Joe in my brother's stocking so he had something to play with. And they always give us a pack of baseball cards so we had something to read and you know, open and, and go, we could open that. And then finally, because my sisters, they're teenagers, they think Christmas morning is a day of rest, and it is not. All right, Christmas morning is not a day of rest. It's a day of jubilation and celebration. They would come down like death warmed over about, eight, what it felt like to me about noon 30, but at, my mom says it was eight o'clock. We finally could open all of the presents. This is the anticipation, but on a far greater scale that Simeon is experiencing every day. He's trying, I know it's coming. The Holy Spirit, which by the way, not normative. Okay, we don't just like it to claim like, well, I felt something in my tummy. So, cl-. you know, we, that's not how, that's not where we get our promises. There are promises in the New Testament that are for us. And I read those, live by those, claim those, hold on to those. But the Holy Spirit speaks to Simeon and says, I give you this promise. And he's just there waiting in anticipation. Maybe it's today. Do you wonder how many times he went to the steps of the temple and just looked around and would go home in the evening? It's not today. And he'd come back. I don't know how many times. Maybe it was only once because he had faith and patience beyond what I will ever have. But I would have been there every day. Is it today, Lord? Oh, how long, oh Lord? Because God gave him a promise that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Why? Why? Like, why, why? You ever stop in one? Like, God didn't have to do, do that at all. Why did God bother to give this obscure first century Jew such a profound promise? He didn't have to. Have you ever stopped to ask that? I was thinking about that this week. I was given a lot of thought. Like, why, why does God make any promise? And I, I think there's various levels which we can answer that question. First of all, I think this is vitally important. Because God is a promise-making God. He just is. It's part of his character. It's who he is. God is under no obligation or compulsion to promise Simeon anything. It is by God's sovereign will that he chose to make a promise to this man. Second, every promise God makes is an act of grace and love. It's not because Simeon was more devout or more faithful, though certainly his longing seems to have been great. But I don't think it's God, well, let's line up all the people who are longing for the Messiah and let's see who gets the most. There was no prize. This wasn't a raffle. Just God and his sovereign will says, I'm choosing to use Simeon today. And I'll give him this promise and he'll be blessed by it. But it is my decision. But there was no obligation there. But I think most importantly, I think finally, the reason God chose to give this man a promise, the reason he makes any promise, is for his own glory. That he will be glorified through these promises. See, this was not really for Simeon. The promise was to Simeon for God. That he would be glorified. And I think this is true of every promise God makes in his word. Because reality is, this story is not about God's promise to Simeon, but all of the promises God has made that are being answered in this one moment. Simeon isn't even being considered for best supporting actor in this drama. He's but an extra in the redemptive narrative. Let's take a brief walk through some of God's great promises. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the promise of redemption. It's here that the problem began, that Pastor Dave shared with us last week. We are the problem. Our sin is the problem. See, the problem began when Satan enticed Adam, Adam and Eve, with the fruit of the tree. And Satan challenged the very value system of God that he had established with Adam and Eve. Satan says, you can be like God and you will decide for yourself what is right and good. You don't need God to do that for you. And in so doing, Satan flipped the allegiance and led Adam and Eve into an act of disobedience. Do you see what happened there? Disobedience, allegiance, values, enticement, D-A-V-E. The problem is Dave. You're welcome, Dave. We needed one thinly veiled joke at Dave's expense today. Pastor Jason, it's your serve. But tucked into this curse, there was also a promise. That the seed of a woman would one day crush the head of the serpent with his heel. It was a promise that all of creation would be longing for, groaning for, and they still groan for his return. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, the Noahic covenant. And God makes a promise to all mankind that he will never again destroy the earth by flood, and he puts a rainbow in the sky as a symbol of that promise. It's the promise of restraint. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant, when God makes a promise with Abram that he will give him a land and a people, and that through him he would be a blessing to all the people, is the promise of restoration. In Exodus 19, verse 5 through 6, he establishes the Mosaic covenant. God makes a conditional promise with the Israelites through Moses that they would be a treasured possession a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and through them God would bless all people. It's a promise of revealing of God's law and character, but it's a condition of obedience. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant. God makes a promise to David that he would establish his house and his throne, and his would be a kingdom that knows no end. It's the promise of a reign. And then in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34, we see the new covenant. But it's not new as in, like, yet another covenant. It's new as in, like, completely different in substance and nature. It's specifically different from the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. Let me read that to you. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each other, but brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. See, at Mount Sinai, God wrote his law on two stone tablets, and the Israelites broke them faster than Moses could drop them. But with the new covenant, he will write the law on our minds and on our hearts. The Old Covenant shows us our sin and a need for a Savior. The New Covenant promises the forgiveness of sins through a Savior. The Old Covenant was dependent on our obedience, but we are dead in our sin. We saw that clearly last week. We fail. The New Covenant is dependent only on God. In fact, nine times in that short passage in Jeremiah, it says, I will, when God speaks. This is his promise, and he is driving it. It's as if God says, I swear by my name and my name only. Because there's no other name for which he could swear by. And that's huge. Do you know how a promise is worth the paper it's written on? Two words. Purpose and power. Purpose. Does the promise maker have the purpose to keep the promise? See, God is not just a promise maker. He is inherently a promise keeper. He purposes to fulfill every promise he makes. He is omniscient, immutable, and voracious, which means that when God makes a promise, he does so with no regrets, no wavering, no loopholes, no changing his mind, no fingers crossed, and there doesn't even need to be a pinky promise. It's as good as his word. And the power. Does the promise maker have the power to keep the promise he has made? How many starry-eyed lovers have professed their love by declaring, I would climb the highest mountain or or swim across the deepest sea false. They wouldn't. You can't. I can't. I, at least I, can. I'm not a terrible swimmer. I would die in a shallow lake if I had to swim across it to save. I'm just gonna be honest. I'm not a good swimmer. And the reality is, and the reality is despite my love for my family. And I would, I would love to tell my family sitting here, Malachi and, 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 and that I would, I, there's, I would never let anything harm you, but I don't have the power to fulfill that promise. Do I? There are millions of things beyond my control that could befall my family. I don't have the power, but oh my God almighty, he's a mighty fortress and he is omnipotent. There is no power in heaven or on earth that can prevent God from fulfilling that which he has purposed to do. And ladies and gentlemen, he has purposed a solution to our sin problem, a new covenant a child of Abraham, obedient to the law from the line of David, a Messiah, the consolation of Israel, the Lamb of God, who will redeem us from our sins and wipe away our iniquities. The thumbprint is rolling and the ink is drying as the birth of Jesus has arrived. But in Jeremiah's day, they would be right to say, how long? How long, O Lord? When Jeremiah is writing, there's, he says, there's coming a day. But when is that day? He had a longing and anticipation as well. A desperation. The people were scattered, living in exile. There was no temple. There were no sacrifices. There was no land. There was no king. There was no kingdom. God, when will you establish this new covenant? When will you keep your promises? It was Luke chapter 2. When a young couple brings their son to the temple to offer a sacrifice and present their firstborn son to God, and Simeon, being blessed by God's promise of the Holy Spirit, sees it with his own two eyes and he testifies he has arrived. The day is now he waits no longer. He has seen it and he's, it's amazing, right? He's just, when you, well, let's just look at a song and I'll tell you what's amazing. Simeon's song. The next section is Lord. Now you are letting your servant die in peace. He didn't, he was satisfied. He was long he wanted it so bad. He says, just the opening act is good enough. It's like I can die in peace even if I never see the boy at 12 in the temple again. God, just knowing that he has arrived and what you are going to do, your promise, I have such confidence that you and your purpose and your power are unwavering and you're going to fulfill this, that just seeing him, I know it's going to happen now and, and I've seen it, I can die in peace. I don't need to see the final act. Just the opening song is good enough. I'm satisfied because you are faithful to your promises. Says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That's all he wanted, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Testify. He doesn't say, my, my eyes have seen a godly man. My eyes have seen a great teacher. Says <clears throat> he recognizes, and it's amazing. Is he hasn't? He doesn't get to examine the thumbprint. He doesn't have Luke's accounting to say, oh, yep, I see the obedience. Yes, okay, let me think through prophecy. Yeah, okay. Oh, yep, I see through the rest of his life. He just says, no, it's there. The Holy Spirit puts it. This is the one. I know it to be true. I don't know how he recognized the one. It was a spirit thing. It says, you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people of Israel. Praise the Lord that this is a salvation for all people. You see what he did there? His response, though? Simeon breaks out into song. When he goes to bless God, he breaks out into song. In fact, it's the fourth time the participants in Luke's Christmas narrative have broken out into song. Mary sang, Zachariah sang, the angels sang, and Simeon sang. I have a newsflash. The Christmas story is a musical. I'm not a big fan of musicals, but it is. You can't get around it. We're at two chapters in, and there's four people breaking out into song. But have you ever tried to like think what maybe that what did that melody sound like? There are people who are very good at figuring, you know, writing melodies. I am not one of those. I would grow up. I would try and be like, "What does that song sound like?" Lord, now you're letting your servant depart. I don't know. And I always think like, "Man, that has no rhythm and no flow to it." And then one day I was like, "Oh, I don't speak Greek, right?" Like maybe that was the problem because it wasn't written in English. And I was trying to sing. That's a rabbit trail. Let's move on. But this is what I want you to realize. God made a promise for his own glory, and Simeon responded rightly. His heart was so full, like a high school musical, he just burst into song, singing about all that God has done and how faithful he is, and nothing else in my whole life matters. I've seen this moment. I can die a happy man. Worship is the proper response to God's activity, to God's promises in our lives. Simeon isn't just praising God because he honored this one little promise to him. Simeon is praising God because in that moment he has seen the one who will fulfill all that God has promised from Genesis chapter 3 to Jeremiah 31. And his heart is overflowing. You know, God didn't have to make us a promise of redemption. He could have left us in the problem. We we did nothing to earn his promise. He was under no external obligation to offer it to us. He is completely sufficient of himself, and we are desperately in need of him, and he does not need us. But he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And in his grace and mercy and love, he has made us a promise of a Messiah. And in Luke chapter 2 and in this Christmas, we see the arrival, the fulfillment of that promise and the life of Christ that would unfold. And he did all of this for his glory. This Christmas, I want to encourage you to consider what God has done and is doing for you. There are many promises in the New Testament that are just for you and I, that we can hold on to and cling to. Assurances of salvation, of God's love for us. Assurance of being washed clean through the blood Study those, look at those, think of those, meditate on those. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night that you will delight in it. And like Simeon, we are waiting for the arrival. See, he saw Jesus' first arrival, but we are longingly waiting for the second arrival. And that which we anticipate shapes our thoughts and activities today. There is coming a day when Jesus shall return and he will call us home. And he will make all things new. We will be brought back into perfect and full relationship with God the way it was intended in Genesis chapter 2 before we had a problem. So let our anticipation of Christ's return be far greater than that of a child's anticipation of Christmas morning. If you are looking forward to Christmas morning only for the morning, you're missing the bigger picture. And while we are waiting, let us worship. Matthew 26, and I'll close with this, and the praise team is going to come up in just a moment. We're going to sing in response because that seems fitting Matthew 26, we took communion last week. In hindsight, I wish we were doing it again today. Because Jesus says to his disciples, and he took the the Passover cup. Exodus chapter 13. When he took the Passover cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant is God's new economy. Jesus instilled that. And at the end of that, he says, and when they sung a hymn, they went out. Let me pray for you all, and then we're going to sing a hymn in response to God's promises today. And you'll be dismissed with that song. Our God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Father, I think that we have the vantage point that allows us to look back at all of Scripture. And I confess, it was overwhelming just trying to look through the promises that you have made in your word and your faithfulness to keep those things. There's so many of them. I couldn't keep them all straight at times. May that fill my heart to know that your promises and your faithfulness to your word is far greater than my brain can comprehend. Father, we thank you above all that you fulfilled your promise to send a Messiah who would be the solution to our problem. Because we were not born drowning in a shallow lake. We were born dead in our sins. And we could not swim at all. But your Savior, your Son, climbed the highest mountain and he climbed onto the cross to pay for my sins for me. Father, this Christmas, may we be filled with anticipation and joy as we celebrate his arrival. In just name my pray, amen.